Well, hey, good morning and welcome once again. In case you came in a little late, my name's Ryan and I'm one of the pastors here at the Creek Church. Uh, I can tell you more about what I do, but every time I try to actually explain what I do to people, it gets kind of hairy and they get the confused look on their face. So I'm not gonna try. Just know I work here um, and I I do things. Um, But this morning's gonna be a a little little bit different. Um, If you've been here at all for this series, um, it's gonna be be different for a few reasons. One, obviously, I'm not Trevor. have the tattoos and the beard to prove it. Uh, for, for, for two, it's, it's going to be different because uh, this morning, uh, and, and really as I've been preparing for today, um, I didn't so much write a sermon or didn't think about it as, as a sermon or a message or your typical Sunday morning message, as much as it's more about me getting something out, um, out of my mind, out of my head, out of my heart, that's kind of been on repeat. Have you ever had an idea that you just can't seem to shake? Like no, no matter what you do, you just, it just keeps coming back. Uh, that's, that's kind of been, been where I've been at for the past couple of weeks and really the past couple of months. There's been this idea running through my head over and over and over again. And so this morning, I'm just going to try to get it out um, and we're going to see, see what happens. Um, if it helps, think of it like a song. Like you, you, we've all heard like a song on the radio and for whatever reason, you just can't seem to get it out of your head. And it's never like, it's never an appropriate song or it's never a song that you're like, you, you're proud to have stuck in your head. And, and you, for, you just end up walking around humming the song or singing the little parts that you happen to remember. And somebody's like, oh, I feel like I've heard that. Is that, is that, is that the new Taylor Swift song? And you're like, oh, man, card gone, yes. Like, it's it's, it's kind of it's like that, that experience. And so this, this morning, I, I wanna talk about an, an idea and not so much an idea as much as it is a word. And it's a word that we've been spending a lot of time on for the past couple of weeks in this series. And it's kind of the whole point of, of the series. But words are, the reason I wanna focus on this word is because words are incredibly important. You know that. Um, and because words are so important, words are hard. Uh, you, you've probably had a conversation with a significant other at some point in your life and you happened to flub on like one particular word. You said something the wrong way and what was a casual conversation turned into World War III all of a sudden because you misused just one one particular word or you happen to say it in a certain way um, because words, words, words are hard and they're hard because they're important and, and they matter and, and what we say and, and how we say it can change completely and dramatically depending on who we're saying it to because people bring baggage with them when it comes to understanding certain words and what they mean and I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about words if, if you can't tell and then being used the right way even though in this sermon I'm probably not going to use some the right way so show me some grace but the word that I want us to, to look at this morning is a word that's basically been the point of the whole series and it's this right here church church I want us to talk about this word Because this word, in my opinion, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Even in this room, when we hear the word church, we all have different thoughts pop into our head. And and for for good reason, we all have different experiences and different stories. So you bring that to bear. People inside the church who consider themselves a part of the church, we all have different ideas. And people outside of the church, maybe maybe you're even here this morning and somebody invited you and you don't consider yourself a Jesus follower. You hear the word church and you have your own thoughts and your own ideas about what this means and, and what, what, what this looks like. And I think it's incredibly important for us, especially if we're talking about the kind of church that we wanna be, to actually figure out what it actually means to be the church, what that word actually means. And, and let, let me start by kind of unpacking some of my baggage for you. Um, I'm pretty sure I was born in church. Um, I, my, my birth certificate, 
birth certificate doesn't say literally, like not in the back pew, because I would have been messy. Um, but like, I feel like I was. From the moment I was old enough, I was, I was in church. My, my family took me. We were there all the time. Anytime the doors were open, we, we were there. Mulching Monday, we were there. Sunday morning service, we were there. Sunday school before Sunday morning service, there. Sunday night church, there. Wednesday night church, there. We're going to paint the bathrooms, we're there. They wouldn't let me paint because I was a kid, but I had to watch my mom paint. We were there for, for everything. And for, for me, at least in, in my life, I grew up loving church because it's, it's where we spent so much of our time. It's where the snacks were. And we found those real quick while mom was painting the bathroom. It's where I made some of my lifelong friends was, was at church. It's where we went and we, we played games and there was a basketball goal. Although I was terrible at basketball, we still had fun in the gym. I, I grew up loving church. Even though sometimes the songs that we sang, I did not at all understand what the words meant. And, and sometimes the sermons that, that the pastor would preach, I would, I would sleep through. Um, so if you do that to me, it's okay. It's karma. It's coming back to get me. But I loved, I loved church. And, and it stuck. All because of, of, of a church called Xenia Grace Chapel. And all because of what I got to do when I was there. And I know that's not everybody's experience. Not everybody loves church or going to church or whatever it is you think about church. But for me, for whatever reason, it's it stuck and I feel like it's in my blood. And what's great is now it's kind of happened for my kids too. Like now I get to bring my kids to a place and they love coming here. And I love that they love coming here. We, they'll, they'll come with me or Gabby, and, and that's my wife, by the way. Me and, they'll come with us to work sometimes, or we have to run an errand, and we have to stop by the office, and as soon as we come by the building here in London, they see our big, our big C on, on the building, and they scream, church, we're at church, all our friends are there, we're gonna have so much fun. They're very disappointed when they walk in and realize the friends aren't here, it's just mom and dad and, and you all. Um, so we, we bribe them with goldfish, and that makes them quiet. But I love that they love church. Just a couple of weeks ago, Gabby took them to the Williamsburg campus. And when they pulled up, they, they saw you know, a very different building because it's at the mall there. And they saw the Creek logo on the mall. And they said, hmm, it's a different building, but it has the same tattoos. Must, must be awesome. <laughs> they, they are my kids. <laughs> but I love that they're growing up with a love for church. And I hope that stays. And I hope that that remains true for them. But I also hope that they learn, they learn early something that I've been reminded of and something that I've been learning in a very different way over the past few weeks and the past few months. And it's that this, this is not church. What we do on Sunday is not church. Coming and sitting on a nice, comfortable chair and listening to somebody preach isn't church. Singing songs together isn't church. Coming together on Sunday nights, that's not church. Wednesday nights isn't church. Mulching Monday isn't church. Jesus didn't die for that. That's not what church is. And I hope that they learn that, that church is so much more than just a building and it's so much more than something that we go to. See, Jesus, the, the, the church, this whole thing, it was, it was Jesus's idea. He's the one who came up with it. And the first time we really run across it is when he's talking to one of his disciples named Peter. And Jesus has just asked a big question, hey, who do people say that I am? And Peter ch uh, chimes in and he's like, I know who you are, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the hero, you're the hope of the world, you're God in flesh. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says this, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, on this truth, on what you just said, the basis of that fact, I will build my, what's this word? Church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now I'm gonna nerd out on you, okay? Because this word, is not what Jesus actually said. Jesus never said church. 
Jesus actually came to do away with what most of us tend to think of when we think of church. See, what Jesus said was a Greek word, and you may not care, but act like it for a minute. What Jesus said was this word right here, ekklesia. Jesus said, I'm coming to build my ecclesia. And that doesn't mean anything because you're not Greek. And that, that's fine. I'm going to explain what he meant. Ecclesia, it meant a group of people that were called out from everyone else. It meant a government, a kingdom, a different culture, a different family, a different tribe, a different bloodline. What Jesus was saying is that upon this truth, I'm going to build a movement. I'm going to build a group of people. I'm going to build a family. I'm going to establish kingdom outposts in a fallen world of my kingdom. And it's going to look and feel differently. I'm going to establish my ecclesia. I'm going to start a movement. I'm going to start a group of people that is family. Because by my blood, I'm undoing all bloodlines. Last names no, matter, no, no longer matter. By my blood, I'm undoing all nationalities because it no longer matters. All that matters is this, the kingdom of God. I've come to create this, this ecclesia. But then something happened. When they, they translated the scriptures, they, they turned it into what was called the Latin Vulgate. And you had to learn Latin in order to read the Bible. And nobody knows how to read Latin. Knew, nobody knew then. So when the Reformation happened, most of the early first reformers were German. And they translated this word ecclesia to this word. I'm not even going to try to say it because my German is very bad. But when you and I read it, it reads like, like church. And it's the German word for a sacred place. It's the German word for a tabernacle. It's a German, it's a, it's a German word for a temple. And when the, the English speakers went and they began to translate the original text into what we call our Bible, they decided they were going to take this, keep this, and they were going to use the word church. And all of a sudden, what Jesus came to do away with, the Old Testament idea of going to the house of the Lord, of going to Jesus' house, of going to God's place, of going to this sacred space, was thrown out. And church started to become that again. Because Jesus didn't come to create a sacred space. He didn't come to create a sacred temple. Because of Jesus, you and I are the temples, the dwelling places of the living God. We are sacred people, and everywhere we go is sacred space. That's why Jesus came. He came to establish a royal priesthood. He came to establish a family. He came to establish a family of the most high God, of which we are all sons and daughters, if you are here and you call yourself a Jesus follower. He came to establish a church, and that's what the church is. Not a place, but a people. And not a people that come and sit in chairs on Sundays and sing songs, but a group of people that are known for something, that do something, because church isn't something we go to. It's who we are and what we do. It is the most important thing that any of us can ever give our lives to and will ever be a part of, because it's God's family. It's God's kingdom. It's God's story for humanity and for us. And just like any, any country, any kingdom, any nationality, any tribe, any family, Jesus said, my people will have clear identifiers. Their culture will be unique. There will be family traits. There's gonna be a birthmark. And if you've been here for the past couple of weeks, you, you probably already know what it is. This word, love. And it seems like through this series, this word, this idea keeps coming up over and over and over again of, of love. And if, if you're tired of it, I'm sorry, Jesus started it first. You wouldn't have liked Jesus either because he was incredibly repetitive. Almost to every major question that he was asked, he would answer in a roundabout way, love. When, when a teacher came up to him and was like, Jesus, tell me what's the most important thing I could do? He said this right here, love God and love people. His disciples came to him and they were like, hey, how can I become great? Love, be a servant, 
put others first. Jesus, uh, this person's really harmed me and they keep harming me and doing the same thing. How many times do I need to forgive them? Keep loving them, keep forgiving them. Jesus, I had this really dumb person in my life. Man, they're like a really dumb sheep. What should I do about them? Love them. Jesus, I had this person in my family and they've taken everything from me and they just keep abusing our relationship. What should I do? Keep loving them. And to every question Jesus was asked, his answer was love, 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 love. You talk about a broken record. It was Jesus, love, love, love. And basically the rest of the New Testament, what we find is the the story of God's people, of us, the early version of us, trying to figure out how to do this. Because before Jesus, this was not a thing. People didn't know how to do this. It was a very different world. And that's what we find in the epistles, the letters that are in the New Testament. We find the early apostles and disciples helping the church figure out how to love God and how to love people. And so through this series, we've looked at the stories of the church at Antioch, at Corinth, at Thessalonica, at Ephesus. And this morning, we're going to look at the story of one of my favorite churches, one of my favorite local bodies, one of my favorite kingdom outposts. And it's the Christians, the Jesus followers at the city of Philippi. Philippi was a Greek city. And at the time that Paul wrote this letter, things were, things were changing. They were changing significantly in the world. Paul was the type A entrepreneur who planted churches all across the world. He was a world traveler. He would have made for an excellent CEO. He was, he was that kind of guy. But at the time that Paul wrote this letter, he wasn't traveling the world anymore. Most historians, well, we know he was imprisoned. Most historians believe that he was imprisoned by Nero, the Caesar of Rome. And that shortly after writing this letter about two or so years, Paul would be killed for his faith. In 62 AD, right around the time that this letter was written, persecution of the church became legalized and not only legalized, but governmental, governmentally incentivized. The government basically said, if you've, it's your Roman citizen duty to find and report Jesus followers and Christians. And when we find them, they will either recant or they will die. And that would become the law of the land for 200 years. So yeah, the church, the church underwent some persecution before this letter, but at this time, things were changing and they were shifting and they were beginning to experience real persecution, the kind that we talk about when we talk about the old school persecution that the ancient church went through. And so Paul's gonna write this letter from prison and he's gonna say, hey, I get it. I get what you're going through because literally I'm in chains right now. But get this, because I'm in chains, the Caesar of Rome, he just heard the gospel because of it. There are Roman guards and there are senators and there are people who are getting to hear the good news about Jesus. All because I'm in chains. It's, even though things look really bad, there's still hope and God is still working and moving because that's what God does. When we feel like we're in the shadows, God is still moving, God is still working even when you can't see it. And then he turns his attention in the letter to the Jesus followers at Philippi. He says, I know that you're going through something. I know that no longer do we have all these cool mega churches. No longer is Christianity the cool new hip thing. Now we're hunted down like dogs. And now you're a minority. And he says this, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. When they come for you, when they threaten you, when they make fun of you, when things get difficult, Remember who you are and remember whose you are and remember you are a representative of the living God to the people around you. Remember that you are a representative of the ecclesia. You are the representative of this community, of this family and of this kingdom. So represent us well. Act like it. 
When they come for your life, don't be afraid to give it because we know that this is only the beginning. When they, when they challenge you, when it's stressful, remember who you represent and act like it. Because here's why, the credibility of the church was on the line. And the litmus test wasn't what they believed, it was how they behaved. People know we believe crazy things. We're Christians, it's literally in a book. All they have to do is pick it up and read it. They know it's nuts. They're not deciding whether or not they agree with it based on what's in the book, based on what we say we believe or our doctrine statements. They're deciding what they think about God in the church based on how we behave. And based on if we behave the way that Jesus said we actually would. And Paul's saying, those are the stakes. The people who are hunting you down and killing you, their minds just might change if you act like you believe this. The people who have these bad ideas about the church, they're not leaving because of what we believe. They always always knew it. They're leaving because of the way the church has behaved. And so then Paul's gonna go on and he's gonna help them them understand how love looks in their context, how to behave. And it's one of the, the best known passages that Paul ever wrote. If you have a Bible or you're following along or you want to, it's gonna be in Philippians chapter two. And he starts it like this. Therefore, in light of all the things going on, everything that I've just said, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and basically what Paul is saying here is, hey, if you are a Jesus follower, if you've been saved, if you've been born again, if, if, if you consider yourself a part of the ecclesia, if you consider yourself a part of the church, you've been blessed because of God. You've been made new because of God. It may not feel like it today. I get that. It could also be indigestion. You may not be all in your fields in terms of Jesus right now, but if you know you've been blessed, if you know that God has saved you and changed you and you consider yourself a part of the church, I need you to listen up. Make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And this is so like, this is so Sunday school. This is so Kids Creek. This is so simple, right? Like basically Paul is saying, be nice, kids. Like play nice together. He's echoing the prayer of Jesus when Jesus said, help them to be unified because people are going to know that they are my people based on their unity and their love for one another. And so Paul is saying, hey, get along. Stop fighting. It's like a dad yelling at his kid, stop that. Be of the same mind. Agree with one another. Hold together on the important things. And yeah, you're gonna have disagreements. You're human. You're probably right, but forgive the other person anyway. Having the same love. And love isn't about like. Love is a choice to prefer somebody else's good to your own. It's not dependent on chemistry. It's not dependent on their body odor. It's not dependent on their sense of humor. It's not dependent on how they look. It's not dependent on if you like them, on if they're your boss, your employee. They did something terrible to you. Love anyways. And that is a choice of action, not a feeling. Love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And then he goes on, do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And it's at this point that his audience is finally like, oh, okay, this isn't Sunday school anymore. Because he uses a word, this word, humility. Because up to this point in history, humility was not a virtue. It wasn't something to be championed or admired. The Greeks believed that humility, it was a stance for, for slaves, for people that were owned. Humility meant that you were weak. Humility meant that you couldn't win. uh, up, Up until this point, you were great, you knew it, and you made sure everybody else knew it. That was the goal in life, was to be great and make sure everybody else knows it. To wear the chip on your shoulder and don't try to dust it off, just keep it there so everybody knows how much is on your shoulders. And Paul comes in and is like, no, no, not you. 
Your point is to be humble. And humble doesn't mean weak. Humble doesn't mean less than. Humble means that you have the strength to put somebody else first. Humble means that you think of yourself less and you think of others more. Not that you think less of yourself, but you're more concerned with somebody else. And he goes on and he clarifies what he means, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In other words, we are our brothers and sisters keepers. It's our business as the church, as the family of God to be in each other's business. And you can't do that in a dark room in a row. It's our job to know each other, to know names, to know people, to be involved in each other's lives, and then to put someone else's good and welfare before my own. And up until this point, this is all like soft, and this is milk, and this is easy teaching. This isn't difficult stuff for us to hear, really difficult for us to do because we don't do it. So then Paul decides to drop the hammer. And he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And I love this because basically what he's saying is, hey, you remember when you were kids and you used to play pretend? You, 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 you played war and you acted like you were a soldier or a policeman or a doctor or maybe even the president. You remember that? Basically, when little kids play pretend, they're practicing for life. And it's like he's saying, I want you to go back to that. And I want you to pretend like you're Jesus. And when you, you face obstacles and you face things and you face people and they're annoying and, and you face stupid people and you face stupid situations and trials and temptations, ask yourself, all right, I'm Jesus today. So what am I gonna do? Throw back to the 90s. What would Jesus do? Put the bracelet on if you need to. But literally today you get to play the game of today I am Jesus and I'm going to pretend to be Jesus. So in every moment that I can, what would Jesus do? Because that's the game I'm playing. I'm pretending to be like Jesus. Oh, if we did that, that would be a fun game. All right, and then he goes on. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Basically, Jesus, most humble, most humble person that Paul could point to. Jesus, who was God, omniscient, omnipotent, all places, all knowing. His hands, his, his mouth, his words literally spoke the cosmos into existence. He holds all things in the palm of his hands. He knows all things, orchestrates all things. That God, holy, righteous, just, unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, Alpha and Omega. That God. If there was ever anybody who had the right to say, you know what, I'm just gonna sit here and let y'all do everything. You just clean that up over there, I'm God. You just do that. I don't have time for this, I'm God. I'm holding the whole cosmos together. You guys do your thing. If there was ever anybody who was busy, if there was ever anybody who had kids that they needed to take care of, it was God. He didn't though. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, forsaking all of it, jumping down off of his throne, becoming a human. Literally, the hands that sculpted the Grand Canyon became human hands and became a baby. The God who spoke everything into existence couldn't utter a word, but had to learn how to talk again. He did all of that. And we can't fathom what it would be like to be an omniscient, all-knowing God with the thoughts that he has and our highest and greatest thoughts can't even compare to his. Became a human bent down that low for us. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. How far? How humble am I supposed to be? How much am I supposed to put somebody else first? And Paul holds up the example of Jesus who literally had the rights 
to say no, but he did it to the point that he died and he gave his life. Why? Because of our birthmark. The birthmark that Jesus is supposed to share with his family, love for you and for me. And this is the point where we start to kick back a little bit. Like, I don't have time for that. I don't, have, I don't have time to do whatever it is you're getting ready to ask me to do. I don't have time for Kids Creek. I don't have time for Kids Club. I don't have time to be a group leader. I don't have time to get more involved. I got all this stuff going on. I can't possibly lose this. I need some rest. I need some me time. I got to take care of me, yo. I got to sleep. I love my weekends. Like, I can only give an hour and a half on Sunday. You don't know what that other hour and a half means. I'm doing important things that other hour and a half, like watching Netflix. You have no idea. Here's the thing. And here's what Paul is going to teach us in the next part. You and I, I will never regret what love compels me to give away. Never. It may feel like it, and I know you have your excuses, and they seem good. I'm sure glad Jesus didn't use yours. I know you have your reasons, and they seem right to you. But something happened when Jesus jumped down out of heaven, got off of his throne, and became a man. Something happened with the hands, when the hands that sculpted creation willingly gave themselves up on the cross for you and me. Something happened with the mouth that spoke the cosmos into existence, spoke life and grace and mercy to people. Something happened. He jumped down, he lived, he died, and then he rose. And the thing is when he rose and when he came back from the grave, he didn't come back by himself. He didn't come back alone, but he brought us along with him. Because he rose, we rose. Because he came to blessing, we came to blessing. Because he came to life, we came to life. Because he came to eternity, we came to eternity. He had to come and he had to die so that life could come back. Paul says it like this, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, I will never regret what love compels me to give away because what Jesus teaches us is what I lose, I gain. What I think I'm giving up, I gain back tenfold. What I think I'm losing, God multiplies and he gives it back. The time that I'm, I'm losing, guess what? There's something called eternity and it kind of lasts forever. We have an endless amount of time. We have access to God. We have an endless amount of energy. And yeah, you know what? It might kill us, but that's the point. Is that we believe what we believe enough to give it all just like Jesus for the sake of somebody else. Because when Jesus didn't, he came back up, we got blessing and you got blessing and you got blessing and we got life and we got forgiveness and we got grace because Jesus was willing to get up off of his throne and come down. See, in, in, in my experience, I have, I have my excuses too, trust me. Job, office hours, a wife, family, family drama, medical things with parents, kids, I have all of that and it's so, tempting for me to say no to things that I can say no to. Because yeah, there are some things that are a part of my job here, but there are also some things that I get to volunteer to do and I could say no to those things. But what I've experienced is every time I get off my throne and I sacrifice some me time and I sacrifice just what I call veg time to chill and do nothing, I never come back to my throne alone. I always come back with somebody else. I always come back with the person that I gave up time to be with and I get to carry them along with me. 
And that's what happens when we choose to serve, when we choose to put somebody first, when we humble ourselves, we never go back alone, but instead we get to bring other people with us to the feet of Jesus. When you, when you sign up to help in Kids Cove and Kids Creek, when you give some of your time and your life to teenagers, when you do that with, with adults and you decide to get into a group or be a group leader, when we put other people first and we decide that church is so much more than just coming on a Sunday and we buy into what Jesus died to give us, we gain so much more in return because Jesus never died for this. He died for us to be a family. Jesus never died for this. He died for us to be an ecclesia. He died for us to be like the kingdom of God. And it's about time that we started acting like it and that we dropped our excuses because Christianity isn't about what we want, but the life that God came to give us. And sometimes that hurts and sometimes that takes sacrifice, but what we sacrifice, we gain back. And the people we get to take along with us. I know you got kids. I know you have a family and I know you have obligations, but what better example to set for your children? What better example to set for the people around you than sacrificing a piece of you for somebody else? I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe it is taking the card in the back of the seat in front of you and signing up for something. Maybe it's going to thecreekchurch.com slash serve and signing up to be a part of one of those teams. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's the way that you've been acting at work or towards your boss or towards other people or, or within your family. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe it's starting to actually be a good neighbor and getting to know the people that live next to you and getting to know their names and doing things with them and, ser and serving them and preferring them and loving them. And I don't know what your excuses are and I don't know what, where this falls for you. But Jesus didn't come just so we could be good people like everybody else. He came so we could be God's people. And that looks differently. He didn't come for us to do good things. He came for us to do God's things. And that looks differently. And when we begin to act like it, that's when our families, that's when our lives, that's where the places we work and we go to school and we live, that's when they begin to change. So let's be that church, the church that drops the excuses and realizes this, this is not church. This is, you are. We've got to act like it. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much that you didn't, you didn't do what you did so that we could have this. It's so much better than that. That God, you invited us into your story, the true story of redemption and of your family and of your people and of you redeeming all things. And now God, you offer us the chance to be a part of that, to be a part of your family. So God, I don't know what our excuses are and I don't know what steps we need to take, but God, I pray in these next few moments as we sing this song, would you help, help us become keenly aware of the things that we're holding on to, the excuses that we have for not actually being the church. God, convict us of those things and remove them for those of us who are here and call ourselves Jesus followers and help us to actually be the thing that we claim to follow, to be the one that we claim to follow. And as we do, would you do what only you can do through your spirit? Would you change history again as the world sees your church become your ecclesia, become your people, and become your family? And they see our birthmark so incredibly clearly that we are a group of people that love just like you. In your son's name of Jesus.